Welcome to Axis Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The United States no longer goes to war without contractors, yet we don't know much about the industry. Even the U.S. government, the entity that actually pays the contractors, knows relatively little. Well, in his book, The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order, former U.S. Army paratrooper and private military contractor Sean McFate takes us behind the scenes of this secretive industry and provides a prognosis for the future of war. To understand the proliferation of private forces, how they may influence international relations, he looks back to the European Middle Ages when mercenaries were common and contract warfare the norm. He concludes that international relations in the 21st century may have more in common with the 12th century than the 20th. Sean McVeigh is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's an associate professor at the National Defense University, teaches U.S. national security policy at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service in Washington, D.C., and he previously was a paratrooper, as I mentioned, in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division, then a private military contractor with DynCorp International. Sean McFate, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Good morning. How are you doing? Oh, doing well. So uh, before we uh, jump in here, by, by the way, just to, to, to what our uh, listeners uh, whistle here, more than half of the Department of Defense budget in 2010 went to private contractors. That uh, nails down, I think, what, uh, what we've become aware of. And the last 10 years has seen the most fundamental shift, says Mr. McFate, in how armies operate since the rise of the modern nation state in 1648. There's been a, a big shift, and it, it continues to happen. I want to start uh, with your biography. So you were a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne Division. And then as sometimes happens with uh, military people, you uh, went on to work with, for a, uh, a contractor. Yes, that's right. So for uh, I served in the U.S. Army for eight years, and uh, most of that time as a paratrooper. And then uh, I left in 2000, ironically, because I thought the world would be nothing but peacekeeping after that. Um, and of course, 9-11 happened. And uh, like many uh, former soldiers, I ended up back in... In, in the industry, I ended up back in the military, but not in the public sector, but rather the private sector. Uh, so some exciting adventures, I'm sure, in the Army and with the, with the private contractor, DynCorp uh, International. I wonder if you'd tell us uh, about your experience in Burundi. You, you talk about this in the book a little bit. Your, your assignment was quite the assignment. Yeah, well, um, you know, when most people think about this industry, they only think about Iraq and Afghanistan, but that's that's not completely the entire picture. This industry is everywhere, uh, and I was uh, working um, Africa for the most part, um, and some of the strange, we did some interesting contracts, um, and one of the contracts that we did uh, had to do with Burundi, which is a small African country in the middle of Central Africa, uh, just next to Rwanda, and people will, will remember that in 1994 there was a, a very large and tragic genocide in Rwanda that also swept through Burundi and parts of Congo and Uganda. Um, in 2004, the U.S. government believed that an extremist Hutu uh, group, a rebel group, was going to try to assassinate the president of Burundi. And their belief was um, that if they killed the president of Burundi, they could re-trigger the genocide of 1994. And there's some precedent for that. The genocide of 1994 was actually triggered by the, the deaths of the Rwanda and the Burundi president. Um, and it's because of reprisal killings. Hutus will kill Tutsis in revenge for you know, Tutsis killing Hutus, etc. And the U.S. government wanted to prevent this from happening, but didn't want any sort of U.S. fingerprints on it. So what they ended up doing is they ended up contracting this task out. 
and uh, I was to Dyncore International, and I was uh, the program lead for this, and we kept the president alive. Uh, yeah, important work. Uh, and as I understand it, of course, the the U.S. government is involved here, but didn't but didn't want its fingerprints on on this. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. In some ways, um, this industry, the private military industry, is uh, more opaque than the military or even the intelligence community. Uh, like the CIA, for example, has uh, you know oversight committees, as does the Department of Defense in Congress. Um, that you know, not all of them are are public, but uh, many of them are. And if you're a journalist or researcher, you can do something called the Freedom of Information Act inquiry into U.S. government. Uh, so you can FOIA, as the acronym, the, the CIA or the State Department or the Department of Defense. And you know they may or may not give you what you are looking for, but at least you have a shot. In the private military industry, you don't have any shot. Um, researchers, uh, if they ask the private, the private military companies like like Blackwater, now defunct, uh, what, what's going on in Iraq, uh, but those companies can just say, I can't talk to you, this is proprietary information, it's trade secrets, and uh, as a result, we know very little about what actually goes on inside the industry. I wondered, uh, before we go on to sort of more macro issues here, what you personally, um, in the book you talk about a stigma, that I think that's still still there, and the, the word mercenary, that you put in your title has a you know has some connotations that are negative. What what did your what did your former army colleagues think when you went to work for DynCorp? Well, you know, I didn't tell all my former army colleagues for one. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a very divisive issue. I mean, I was they called me mercenary. They said I went to the dark side. I went for the profit. And obviously, I mean, one of the myths in the industry is that you make a lot of money. You, you really don't. Uh, you make a little bit more. You make some more than you do if you're a soldier, but you don't have any sort of long-term benefits. And if something happens to you, your family gets very little, if anything, at all. There's, um, so it's not for the money that people do it for the most part. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's a huge stigma. Uh, I teach at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. That is the premier military's premier war college, and my students are majors and colonels from all the services. Uh, and we also have a lot of international students, colonels and even generals from other countries who come here for a year so that they're, you know, so th- th- this country send them here so that they get a very good military education strategically and also get to know the, you know, the Pentagon a little bit. Um, and no matter if they're American or if they're foreign, they almost all disdain contractors and think of them as mercenary. And, um, and the reasons are quite complex. And, and this is quite old. Between In the Middle Ages, knights versus mercenaries hated each other, too. Uh, and that's because they, they really are an affront to one another. You know, interesting, an affront to one another. D- d- different motives, different purposes? Different... Yeah, exactly. So... If you're, you know, just say you're a Marine or a U.S. Army soldier, you know, you don't work for the Department of Defense. You serve. You take an oath of office. It's sacred. It's for reasons of patriotism, and you will defend your country and, if necessary, lay down your life so that others can live and so that the American way of life can go forward. And you do this for mostly ideological reasons. You know, private military contractors and mercenaries of the past flip this on its head, and they make this sacred duty into a transaction. 
and this this is an affront to those in in the ranks in the armed forces. And that causes potential problems, kind of you know questions of loyalty. If if uh, and in fact, you say in in today's world. Non-state actors are becoming more prominent. So, you know, ExxonMobil, which is an example you use in the book. You, by the way, parenthetically, you say that, you know, the, the case certainly could not be made that Togo is more important internationally than ExxonMobil. And, and I think we would all agree with that. So ExxonMobil, say, hires a private military contractor. You're, yeah, I can see how now you're not working for patriotism. Right. I mean, the, the, the bigger question, of course, is there's a lot of myths about this industry, and part of my purpose in writing this book was to, to pack some salience and sort of oxygen around this highly polemic debate. Uh, there's a lot of you know, knee-jerk left-wing and right-wing reactions, um, but the one thing that we all agree on is that having you know, a, a, a for-profit military capacity at large in international relations might spell out more war. And um, because things are no longer political, what you're doing is if you offer the means of war to anybody who can afford them, if anybody can, you know, can afford to rent an army, can wage war for whatever reason they want, um, that's going to change international relations as we know it. You know, suddenly, like, not just companies, but NGOs, uh, non-government organizations, like humanitarian organizations, might hire one of these companies to do something that, you know, that, that they want it to be is good, like a humanitarian intervention in Iraq to save innocent people. But, of course, that, that could also complicate matters, a lot of unintended consequences there. Um, so this industry offers a lot of people who didn't really have a lot of political clout around the world a new way to do things uh, by force if necessary. You conduct a very interesting uh, thought experiment, I guess, a d- discussion uh, in the book, early in the book, um, about Darfur. And I wonder if you'd take us through that. This is, uh, I don't know if this was a specific uh, NGO or this was an idea that uh, governments aren't intervening. We have a, a you know, genocide. We, we have a huge problem. And uh, governments are just not doing anything. So maybe we ought to, uh, maybe we ought to hire a, a private uh, contractor. Right. So um, your listeners will recall that, you know, in 2005, 2008, um, there was a genocide going on in Darfur, where uh, it's it's the western part of, of Sudan, a large company, a large country in Africa, and uh, the Darfurians were sort of on the west part of that, and they were trying to break away, and the Sudanese government was basically killing everybody of the ethnic group who was from Darfur, and uh, the international community was dragging its feet in some respects. The UN didn't really get involved heavily. NATO didn't want to get involved. Uh, The U.S. didn't really get involved. And so there was a lot of frustration uh, outside in the the world. Um, And in this case, in 2008, uh, a very wealthy individual wanted to hire Blackwater to do a humanitarian intervention in Darfur, and they wanted then to work with an, 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 uh, an NGO, a non-government organization, to sort of what they do is name and shame the international community into having a more robust UN presence. So basically you have a bunch of non-state actors, a very rich person, a private military company, and an NGO staging basically an invasion in another country. Um, for humanitarian purposes. And this, this of course, would have 
this would have been a, a mind bender for the United Nations and for the U.S. government uh, because there's big questions. Like, you know, obviously that's illegal under international law, but of course so is genocide. Uh, and the other question is, could this suck the U.S. into a war in Africa by accident? And, he, and there was a big risk of that. So, and this thing almost it almost happened in 2008. So it's it's just not science fiction. And then you, uh, I'm going to read a uh, just a paragraph here. Um, you write, only states are allowed to wage war. Corporations, human rights groups, rich people, and all other non-state actors are forbidden to use military force to achieve their objectives. A humanitarian intervention organized and conducted by non-state actors would blatantly challenge this norm and set a dangerous precedent. I, I think that was key in the decision not to proceed. But that genie, as it were, I think is is leaving the bottle has left the bottle. I don't know. That's where we're heading. Non-state actors uh, taking a more prominent place on the world stage. Right. So back in 2008, um all the actors involved decided they did not want to do this. They thought it would be a, a reckless thing to do, and they opted not to do that. But, you know, what about next time? What about, what about a, a wealthy Ukrainian tycoon who hires a private military company, say, out of, I don't know, some, not the U.S., right, to say out of another country, to go invade and take back Donetsk Airport in eastern Ukraine, where, you know, Putin has hired, allegedly, Chechen mercenaries uh, in eastern Ukraine. And we're, we're seeing around the world slowly, but it seems to be emerging, are sort of proxy wars being fought by private military firms. And these, a lot of these firms are not U.S. I mean, we, we, again, we only think about these firms as in the context of Iraq or Afghanistan. But what, what America has started, other countries are taking the lead on now. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Sean McFaith, uh, who has written a very interesting book. It's now out from Oxford University Press, The Modern Mercenary. Subtitle is Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order. Uh, Sean McFate has experience. Uh, he was a paratrooper in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. Then he is, worked for a private military contractor in Africa. And he's interested in getting beyond, as he says, the polemic and uh, trying to think ahead. What is this going to mean, the, this expansion of uh, private military contractors? What's it going to mean for international relations and the future of warfare? If you have a question or comment, we would love to involve you in the program here at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. The next time you dig into a big plate of pad thai, think about the origin of that dish. We say Thai food, but in Thailand... Diners talk about the distinct dishes of the regions. Well, this week, we have a guide to regional Thai with Pak Pak's Andy Ricker. Join me. That's a splendid table from APM. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread and Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Sean McFate, who's author of a new book out from Oxford University Press, The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies, and What They Mean for World Order. 
Sean McFate uh, teaches at the National Defense University. He also teaches at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Previously, he was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, and then he was uh, worked for a private military contractor in Africa. So he uh, knows wherever he speaks. He's conducted extensive interviews as well. He's interested in what the future of warfare might look like, the future of international relations, as more and more non-state actors take a more prominent role on the world stage. Those include uh, non-government organizations, rich people, um, and uh, Sean McFate. Uh, you could, you know, you understand uh, an, an NGO that you support. Uh, okay, you know that that's all right if they hire a, a private army, but uh, you know some some bad actor out there somewhere could could equally hire a private army. That's right. I mean, so what we're talking about, uh, Tom, is is we're creating a market for force in the world where conflict is commodified and anybody again who can afford war can wage it and it's no longer for sort of what we consider political reasons you know it's a, we're fighting the nazis uh it could be for anything it could be for conquest it could be for, for protection and most of these companies right now the bigger ones they act in a purely defensive manner like you know an oil company might hire one of these companies to protect its people and its assets in a dangerous location same with ngos but a lot of these cap- these companies also have offensive capabilities too and um so if a client wanted to hire them to take over somebody or to, to wipe out a, a rebel group, as Executive Outcomes did in the 1990s in Angola, uh, Executive Outcomes is a very large, uh, very powerful, uh, now you know, out-of-business company, uh, it's possible for them to do that. So uh, these private contractors, it's, they're already out there. And and they're performing services we don't think about sometimes. I learned reading your book that uh, the piracy, for example, in the Somalia area has been greatly reduced through the use of private navies. Yeah, so it's not just private armies. There's private navies, too. And, uh, and, and the private sector had a role to play in reducing piracy off the coast of Somalia. It was not the only reason. There are others. Um, but we also see uh, piracy now in the Gulf of Guinea, which is on the western side of Africa. And we see a lot of counter-piracy companies, mostly emanating from London, um, operating there. And shipping lines will pay them. And what they do, they're called embark security. And they'll have like, um, they'll have like a big ship in the middle of the ocean. Uh, and it'll, it'll act like a fortress, like an arsenal. And they'll either, they'll either helicopter sort of troops, if will, like private armed guys to ships that are going through pirate waters to protect them. Or they'll put them there on, you know, via, um, you know, just by boat. But um, international maritime law does not allow armed cargo ships into ports. So that's why that's why they have these floating armories out there. And uh, I was reading about mercenaries in cyberspace, hackback companies. Tell me about this. Yeah, so you know, hackback companies are mercenaries in cyberspace. These are these are uh, hackers that you pay for. So um, just say you're just say you're a company, uh, and you're getting you're an American company, a big company, uh, you know, just like Target was, you know, a couple two years ago or a year ago, and you get hacked, and that's very bad for business. And you all you can do under U.S. law is defense. You can just like block. It's like being a goalie. All you can just block shots. You can't actually. Uh, go, you know, do something, you know, go after the hackers. So what some companies are considering, which is illegal, is do they hire offshore hackers to basically hack the hackers who attack them? 
So these are like counter hackers. Uh, and the idea is like if you if you you know if you get hacked by the Russian mob uh, or China, this other set of hackers would go find out who hacked you and hack them back. They're called hackback, uh, and they're they're sort of like cyber mercenaries basically. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to this uh, the, the the increasing use of mercenaries, uh, private armies. More than half of the Department of Defense budget in 2010 went to private contractors, and very soberingly. Contractors uh, account for 25% of all U.S. fatalities since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, uh, you know, began. So uh, private contractors are taking on the work, taking on the ultimate sacrifice uh, in increasing numbers um, away from public standing armies. That's the way we've that's the way we've done it before. And so that opens up a whole a whole host of questions. It does. I mean, one could even think that, you know, contrasting is a new American way of war. Um, You know, in in World War II, only 10% of the force was contracted. In Vietnam, it was like 20-25%. In Iraq, it was 50%, which means there was a one-to-one ratio. For every soldier, there was a contractor. Uh, In Afghanistan, it was even higher. It was closer to 70%. And a question is, like, next, you know, next generation will it be 80 to 90 percent. Will America be fighting its wars mostly through contract armies? Um, and you know, most of these contractors are not even American citizens. That's another myth. I mean, only the, the leadership, the top, you know, 10 or 20 percent might be American with some middle management. But a lot of these contractors, these big companies, are not American at all. Uh, they come from all over the world. Um, and also contractors are paying the ultimate price. I mean, as you said, I mean, in the beginning of the Iraq war, it was mostly U.S. forces who were the casualties, but at, towards the end, it, it flip-flopped. It was mostly contractors. Um, so we see a trend line here, which might be very disturbing, that you know, America is increasingly fighting its wars uh, using the private sector. Why did America get into to this? Like it had to do, I think, we are waging two wars, and uh, this was uh, deemed to be the best way to go about that. That's a great question. I mean, there's no question that the American military is the best in the world. There's no, not even a close second to that. It's not like America needed to have, you know, a contracting force. And by the way, most contractors are not armed, uh, you know, uh, but still they, they do, like about 10, 15% of them are armed. And they, have a, they have a big uh, impact on strategy. Um, the reason why America policymakers, whether they be Democrat or Republican, have continued on with contractors is this. Um, when the Iraq war started and the Afghan war started, uh, nobody envisioned it would be as you know, 10 years, uh, you know, for better or for worse, without going into that debate. Um, and so policymakers were faced with three terrible options. Either they withdraw prematurely and, you know, lose the wars, which would be political suicide, or they, um, they have a Vietnam-era-like draft to fill the ranks of the U.S. military, which would also be political suicide, or they contracted it out. And they, they chose the last. We're going to contract out, uh, you know, the armed forces, parts of the armed forces, which is how you got to 50% of, you know, people in Iraq were contracted. Um, it was sort of political expediency. Hmm. What if you talk to me a little bit about Blackwater? This this became the symbol 
for for mercenaries. You know, it's the first big name, I guess, that out there. Uh, and so it took took the brunt, I guess, positive and negative. Well, there's a lot of negative press about Blackwater to the extent they changed their name. I think they've changed their name a couple of times. Uh, so this illustrates in war, bad things happen sometimes. And there there was a there was killing of civilians in Iraq, and and then there, that provoked a lot of thought about well, okay, this isn't government. So what process do we use to to bring these uh, actors to? Uh, to, to to justice, and what do you do with a with a private army? Well, it still remains an unanswered question that you ask there. So, in two thousand seven, in September, uh, Blackwater, uh, now a notorious private military company, and has changed its name twice, as you as you say, um, uh, like a, a small group of Blackwater contractors killed seventeen innocent Iraqis at a traffic circle in Baghdad um, one day. And uh, and for this, you know, it all of Iraq, in fact, all the Middle East went up in uproar, which really hurt American interests, obviously, because America is trying to win the hearts and minds of the Iraqis for counterinsurgency, and to have a bunch of contractors kill um, some would say, you know, many would say excessively, um, you know, innocent lives uh, was was too much. And so this caused a huge backlash against America, and it also brought home the question of, like, well, what do, why are these people, why are these civilians armed on the battlefield, you know, working under the American flag? Uh, and then most importantly, there was no justice. They just went home. They, there was no trial. There was no nothing. They just, you know, as Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, said in front of congressional testimony, you know, what happens when he was asking, what happens to contractors when they, they commit murder? And he says, well, they get aisle or window, meaning they go home with an aisle seat or a window seat, and that's it. Now, recently, last year, uh, those contractors were finally tried and were found guilty of murder and uh, are going to jail. Uh, but that's, of course, years after this all happened. And in some ways, this is not really about those contractors. There's a, there's a systemic problem that has not been addressed. There's no regulation of this industry. I mean, there's more regulation about the automobile industry than the outsourcing of military might. And this is a big problem internationally, as many have, have observed. So that it brings you know this the issue of control, right? They're they're in in essence representing whoever uh, hires them. But not only that, if if it's an American company with American employees, then they're representing in a sense America, even if they weren't hired by America, right? So control. Right. It's not. It's it's a lot of things. It's control for for sure and safety. And also, it's an image thing. I mean, do Iraqis differentiate Blackwater guards from American soldiers? I mean, we do, but they don't. I mean, they these Blackwater guys, you know, and and others, not just Blackwater, look and walk and act very similarly to American soldiers. And many of them are ex-American soldiers. So from the from the point of view of everybody else, it's it's really indistinguishable uh, between you know how U.S. Marines behave and how private military contractors behave, and this is a big concern for the military, the U.S. military, because they're like, we don't want these yahoos running around, you know, our battle space sort of representing us. Um, that said, I mean, uh, Blackwater, uh, in some ways, is uh, is sort of been. Yeah, 
there's there's not not every not every company in the industry is Blackwater, and some of these companies do some very good things, and and can be a force for stability and good. And the question is, you know, this industry is not going to go away. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry now. It's now proliferated. It's globalized. It's everywhere. We can't sort of outlaw it. So how do we, you know, what can we do to to sort of, uh, you know, to to squeeze out what is good and sort of mitigate the risks? That's the big question going forward. One of the problems you point out is that uh, if the U.S., for example, imposes strict regulations on private military contractors, uh, what's to stop uh, the, these companies from moving to Dubai? You, you point that out as an example of uh, you know business-friendly company that's uh, centrally located to a lot of where the business is for these contractors. So there, that poses a problem, doesn't it, For if you want to regulate these companies? That's right. So if you just regulate these, you know, if you have a, you know, a strong regulation, you're just going to drive these companies offshore. That's all you're going to do. So that's not really a solution. Uh, I mean, there's another question, like, you know, the U.S. has been using this industry for over 10 years. There should be some sort of regulation. There's really nothing at all. Um, but if you regulate them too much, they're going to go away. It's going to go to other, other lands and places, tax havens, etc. Um, there is an, an effort to have a voluntary regulatory system based in Switzerland called the International Code of Conduct. Um, where companies sort of sign up and say, we promise not to violate human rights, we promise to do the right thing. But the problem is, is that this is completely voluntary. And like, if, if, a, if, a, if a company you know, kills civilians by accident and nobody knows about it, they're not, gonna, they're not incentivized to report that. You know, they're gonna, it's like if a bank gets hacked and gets lots of money stolen, they're not going to sort of probably wave their hand and say, oh, we just lost a lot of money, we're, you know, we're still in bad for business, right? So, you know, self-regulation is not the answer. Um, other options exist, but how do you regulate this industry is very difficult. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to go back to the future. Um, Sean McFate, my guest uh, today, he, his book is uh, The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What May- They Mean for World Order. Uh, he has uh, formulated what he calls neo-medievalism, He says uh, we look to the 12th century, he can give us more clues as to what the future of modern warfare and private armies will be than than perhaps the last century. Uh, So we'll talk about that and more when we come back. Did you know that approximately 75% of students who receive mental health services get these services in school settings? School psychologists and school counselors are key mental health providers who help teachers and families maximize students' active engagement in learning and strengthen their personal, academic, and social development. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Mozart was born January 27, 1756. On his 259th birthday, we've got a party. In fact, we'll take you to a big annual party in his hometown of Salzburg. We'll hear highlights from the most recent Mozart Week. I'm Fred Child. It's Happy Birthday, Mozart, on the next Performance Today from APM. Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Sean McFate, 
who is the author of an interesting new book out from Oxford University Press. It's called The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies, and What They Mean for World uh, Order. It's not just Iraq and Afghanistan. It goes well beyond Blackwater. Uh, these uh, private companies are performing uh, myriad um, services around the world. Uh, only some of them, or a portion of percentage of them, are armed. Uh, but increasingly, governments are uh, turning to uh, private military contractors. Uh, Sean McFade is senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's associate professor at the National Defense University. He teaches U.S. national security policy at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Washington, D.C. He was a paratrooper in the U.S. Army and uh, then a private military contractor in Africa. He's interested in the future of warfare and what these uh, private organizations might mean for international relations. And as I mentioned before, um, since, uh, let me pull this up again, more than half of the Department of Defense budget in 2010 went to private contractors. And Sean McFate says the last 10 years has seen the most fundamental shift in how armies operate since the rise of the modern nation state in 1648. So I want to get into this, uh, your idea of neo-medievalism. You say if we want to look to the future, what this might mean, we need to look to the 12th century rather than our, our last century. Yeah, so when we think of militaries today, we only think of, you know, uh, them serving states. You know, it's France, England, Germany, etc. Um, but it wasn't always so. Uh, the idea of, of that global politics was controlled by states is a relatively new thing in human history, only a couple hundred years. And uh, what happened before that, it was just a mess. Uh, anybody... Um, could be a power. All they had to do is, is have enough resources uh, and, frankly, uh, the muscle to, ex- to ex- you know, establish their authority. And muscle, in this case, means you know, armed force. So um, I look back to the Middle Ages when, when mercenaries are very common. In fact, that's how war was fought in the Middle Ages. And the reason is this, is that you know, it's like renting a car versus owning one. Owning a car is very expensive. Owning a standing army is very expensive. So people, what they did, they had mercenaries everywhere, and when you needed to, to offend or defend, you just hire a company of, of mercenaries. And they, um, they're very much like private military contractors today. They organize themselves in corporating companies called free companies. Um, like private military companies today, they, they are from all over the, all over the known world. They, they weren't like just one ethnicity. You, had, you, you could be in a company that could have French and Italian and Scottish and maybe even some people from from uh, what is now Syria there, uh, fighting alongside of you. And uh, these people were called, not mercenaries, they were called condottieri in Italian, which means contractor. And, um, and you would hire them to do uh, war just like you'd hire a contractor to, say, fix your kitchen. It wasn't considered illegitimate, and anybody who had money could do it. So whether it's a rich family or a state like Florence, like a city-state like Florence, or even the Pope. I mean, the Pope used to wage wars with mercenary armies all the time. Uh, this is how warfare was done. It was contract warfare, sort of like contract killing, but on a war scale. Um, and we're, sort of to go, we're starting to go back to that world order right now. It's, it's, it's not just right. It started probably the end of the Cold War, where the power of states is slowly unraveling, and everything else is taking, its, taking form. And we're seeing this right now. Uh, we see, you know, it's seen in, the, in the Iraq right now. Like, uh, it's sort of what they call balkanizing. You know, states are kind of disappearing, and other, things are t- other political authorities are taking their, their, their space uh, and using force to do it. 
So that is, on one level, unsettling, right? We've been used to nation-states um, being the actors. Uh, and in fact, it was, for a while there, for decades, it was coalesced into two superpowers. Now that's all sort of balkanizing. What what lessons do we do we take? What what can you predict then going into the next few decades from the lessons of, of neo-medievalism? Well, for one thing, you know, international laws and international like laws of war do not apply. Uh, international laws of war are are an agreement between states and how they're going to conduct warfare. So that's fine in World War II between Germany and America. Um, but not between Al-Qaeda and America, because Al-Qaeda doesn't really care about laws of war. It, didn't, it, didn't, it never signed up to laws of war. Um, so it's going to change warfare. Um, the second thing it does is that when you have a market um, for force, it, it, where you know, private military companies or mercenaries can be hired by anybody, it's going to make really rich th- people and things superpowers. So, you know, really rich, ultra-wealthy tycoons and corporations could become a new type of superpower in the 21st century if they can wage war. And they're not going to wage war against strong states like the United States or, you know, NATO countries. They're going to do it in in weak places, you know, like the Congo, um, you know, like, you know, Afghanistan after the U.S. leaves there. Uh, and, And we're already seeing warlords actually saying, hey, I'm now a private military company. You can hire me out. And and they are being hired. In fact, even the U.S. military has hired for-profit warlords uh, as private military companies in the past in Afghanistan. So we're starting to we're starting to see a world where where there's going to be more war, and that also uh, new strategies will also sort of present themselves because of the nature of this type of warfare. You wrote uh, one of the big lessons uh, that in the, the this new world order will produce a system, global system that contains rather than solves problems. That's right. So this new world order, which is a lot more messy, uh, I call durable disorder. And durable disorder means that it's not going to be Armageddon. It's not like going to be uh, end of days when everything's going to sort of go on fire and we're going to be presented with this post-apocalyptic world. But it's not going to be able to also resolve problems either. Uh, Not arguably that the world last century resolved problems terribly well. but it's going to be a, a situation where there's no sort of higher authorities uh, on the planet. And basically, those who, who have the ability to, to exert their political will can do so. Um, so we're going to have a system like the Middle Ages that doesn't fall apart, but it doesn't really um, resolve problems either. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I guess there's good and bad. I get it, Whatever world order you have, there's, there's good and bad. That's, uh, you, yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely changing. That's mm-hmm. the point. Yeah, um, I'm curious to go back to your personal experience, and you set this up in a very interesting manner. That you said that the the knight on the horse, were, you know, working for his liege lord, to take it back to the, you know, medieval times, uh, taking it forward. This would be the the official soldier, which you were as a paratrooper. Then crossing that line, and there's sort of a e- eternal friction between the the two models. To becoming a employee of a of a uh, military contracting firm, what was that like for you? You you have a real sense of mission in the army, and then and and then what with with Dyncorp? Well, it's a great question. I mean, in some ways, 
In the Army, there, there is a sense of purpose. There is a sense of, of tradition. As a paratrooper in the 82nd Armored Division, uh, we were all very aware of the division's legacy in, the, in you know, World War II and especially in D-Day. And this became, uh, and it, we internalized this pride and, and made us work harder and, um, and to do things that we wouldn't do if we were just getting a paycheck. Um, and the camaraderie that comes with that, and in some ways the warrior ethos that comes with that. Um, going to the private side, there's none of that. Everybody, you know, most, most of these companies, they hire only ex-military and ex-police to do this actual work. They don't actually really have the basic training. They could create a basic training course, but why would they need to do that when they already have the U.S. military feeding them a, you know, a labor pool? Um, but we, ha- but when you go to the to a company, um, it's no longer uh, it's no longer, if you will, special. Um, and some might view that cynically and say, "Well, you just you just wised up." Uh, and others might view that more romantically and say that's a real loss because warriors ultimately do heroic things not for not for a paycheck. <laughs> they believe in something. Um, so it was it was very strange to go to a world where you're expected to risk your life, but the only reason to do so is is uh, you know a financial gain, and that's not always the reason people do it, but that's that's a common one. Uh, yeah, you'd still have a sense of accomplishment. You, you know, you you kept the president of Burundi alive, that's, and that that has geopolitical ramifications, which I'm sure you saw as, as good. Yes, I mean I, I am very proud of some of the work that we did. Um, there's a lot of benefit. I mean, people. It's easy to to paint this industry with a very black brush, um, and but they do some very good things too, uh, and they're able to do things that the U.S. government can't do or or can't do efficiently. Um, they're very efficient in private sector ways. They're very resourceful, um, and they they think of solutions that the government wouldn't think of, at, or if it could think of it, might be hampered by bureaucratic turf wars. These companies are not beholden to turf war. Uh, they are very mission-focused. They have specialized skills, like they're very good at raising security forces. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing them in Iraq, hired by the U.S. government to raise, you know, to re-raise, if you will, the Iraqi army. Um, I, I think that... Um, you know, the work I was doing in Africa, I stand by that work. It was good. And it's not, it wasn't for the paycheck. It was also doing things I couldn't have done in the U.S. Army, um, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a younger captain. It's, you don't have those opportunities. So some of the, it's not an entirely bad story. This industry has a lot of good things to offer. The question is, you know, how can we, how can we you know, push the good and, and hold back the bad? That's the issue. We're coming down to the end of the program, and uh, we are joined by John in uh, Moab. John, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Well, thank you for a really excellent um, topic. This is something that I don't think is going to go away soon, and as Sean has said, it's been around for almost a 1,000 years. Um, What I'd like to know is, what do you think will happen when one of these, um, say, privatized war corporations gets hold of a nuke. You know, we already have instances where our own government says, hey, you guys are going too far, you know, over in Iraq and Iran and so on, over in the Middle East, where they've had to prosecute these corporations or individuals for going too far. What happens when they get their their hands on a nuke? And that's my question for you. Thank you. Thanks, John, for that. 
Wow, John, that's a very scary thought for uh, a morning. Um, you know, the, 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 the simple answer is they become very powerful and people start taking their phone calls. Uh, the, the, the strange thing, if you look at the history of mercenaries, and you know, mercenaries have been common throughout most of history. It's only in the last couple hundred years that they, that's been actually anomalous. Um, you know, if you think of this as a business thing, supply and demand, you know, security is the one type of supply that can generate its own demand. Meaning that in the mercenary days, um, you know, out-of-work mercenaries, what do they do? Well, they become bandits. Or they engage in racketeering. They show up to a walled city and say, look, give us 5,000 pounds of gold and we won't sack you. We won't sack you this month. They're like the mafia. And that's what happened frequently in the Middle Ages with mercenaries. So you can imagine, uh, worst case scenario, a company finds or purchases or makes a nuclear weapon, which is possible, right? It's possible. And then they, they start extorting world capitals around the world. Um, you know, so that could happen. Um, and, you know, we also know that there's a market for nuclear weapons. I mean, uh, Pakistan, famously with the Khan Network, sold a lot of this stuff. And this is how nuclear technology proliferated in the last, you know, two or three decades. Uh, it's, it's possible to do that. Uh, I have not seen in my research any evidence to suggest that that's happening right now, though. Uh, but it's certainly something we can't rule out. Just to have a couple of minutes left, and I, I've, I've been curious, since we have a little bit of time here, to, to, to ask you about uh, the, uh, the self-styled Islamic State, which, which would seem to exemplify some of the things we've been talking about. It's, it has state in the name, but it's not really a state, as recognized as such, but it, it, it's an organization that's sort of filled a power vacuum there. Yeah, well, in some ways, it's a, it's a great example of what I call neo-medievalism that states are no longer center stage in world politics, that they're being replaced by other types of entities, whether they be multinational corporations or, in this case, uh, a, a quasi-state uh, you know, run by and governed by a terrorist organization. Uh, and the fact that it doesn't, you know, it's a very real chance, in my opinion, that the Middle East will balkanize uh, in the next couple of years. Um, you know, so um, ISIS is the beginning. Uh, I think this is going to happen more and more. I think we can look at parts of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. They're already this way. The Congo is, is this way. Sudan's this way. The Sahara is this way. You can look at what's going to happen in Afghanistan after the U.S. leaves and, and Pakistan as well. Um, I, I, I see sort of political order, as we like to think of it globally, um, starting to decay in all but the strongest places, like you know, Western Europe, North America, parts of East, East Asia, but the rest of the world, um, you know, narco, narco gangs in Mexico rule bits of Mexico, I think, or bits of Latin America. So I think uh, this, is, this is the future, uh, but it's, it's not all bad news, as it sounds like it is. But um, again, if you look back to the Middle Ages, it's a more of a durable disorder than uh, a destructive disorder. We will leave it there. The book is The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order. It's out from Oxford University Press. The author is Sean McFate, who's been my guest for the hour today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, join me tomorrow. I'll be talking with Weber State University professor Susan Matt. She has a very interesting book out. It is called Homesickness and American History. Homesickness today is dismissed as a sign of immaturity. It's what children feel at summer camp. But in the 19th century, it was recognized as a powerful emotion. 
When gold miners in California heard the tunes Home Sweet Home, they sobbed. When Civil War soldiers became homesick, Army doctors sent them home lest they die. We'll take a look at homesickness with Susan Matt. That's the program tomorrow. Hope you'll uh, join me then. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio commentator Richard Ratliff. Oftentimes the solution to difficult problems is to use the right tool. I remember a company with a small work team that had developed a relationship problem. This small team of less than a dozen members was critical to the successful operations of the organization. The team was polarized into two opposing factions, which of course made working together very difficult. Team members described the work environment as tense and toxic. They said they hated to come to work each day. They said the problem was so bad and had festered so long that it was impossible to solve. Company management was at a loss as to what to do short of recruiting a whole new crew, which was not an acceptable solution for a variety of reasons. There was no apparent good solution. Let me introduce now a man by the name of Edward de Bono, a European creative thinker who developed and promoted an idea called Poe, spelled P-O-Po. The word is used to question the impossible. We sometimes hear statements such as, that is impossible, or we can't do that. For example, when I was young, people would often say, when saying something was impossible, well, we may as well try to fly to the moon. In the situation of the company's work team, the team and management had given up. It seemed impossible for the team members to work together effectively. Dr. De Bono cautioned against reaching such a conclusion too quickly. He suggested instead to pull the problem. Instead of saying, we can't do that, or that is impossible, rather, he said to ask, what would it take for man to fly to the moon? Dr. De Bono suggested that the impossible may suddenly become quite possible, and Poe becomes a valuable tool in resolving very difficult problems. The squabbling team members were asked, what would it take for you to forgive each other and to get happily back to work? Poe that idea. Within days, team members themselves had formulated and agreed on a strategy. Within a month, they and management reported that the wounds were stitched and healing. Some modern philosophers argue the isolation of life. They say we are all lone savages in a dangerous world. In reality, human life as we understand it is impossible without relationships. They are part of the human experience. No one is exempt. Unfortunately, people have problems in their associations together. That, too, is part of life's experience. Still, for most of us, happiness and success come in the context of relationships in our families, neighborhoods, community, and workplaces. Good relationships have a few things in common, purpose, respect, and trust. When mutual purpose, respect, and trust fail, relationships suffer but usually with the right tools, a remedy is available. In the heat of an argument, when a child disobeys, again. When your neighbor's weed killer drifts onto your iris bed, again. When your boss is unsympathetic. When your employee just doesn't get it. When a telemarketing company interrupts yet again the privacy of your home after your many attempts to stop the calls. And when you just can't face another day working with that person. Ask 
What would it take to improve the association, to improve our mutual purpose, respect, and trust? Poe that idea. Try it. What would it take? You may be surprised. A solution can be a short thought away, and the impossible may become possible. Consider the relationships. This is Richard Ratliff. Thanks for listening. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Are you at risk for diabetes, heart disease, and other chronic diseases? And how do you know? During an annual exam, your doctor can take a careful look at your numbers, including your cholesterol and triglyceride levels, your blood pressure, and more. Knowing your numbers is an important part of keeping your heart healthy, and it can save your life. It can help you and your doctor know your risks and mark the progress you're making toward a healthier you. Healthy numbers mean a healthy heart. If you follow a healthy lifestyle, eat a balanced diet, get regular exercise, and avoid smoking, you can even turn bad numbers around. Post the goals you need to reach on your refrigerator as a reminder to love your heart. Small changes can make a big difference. This is Dana Barrett, Wellness Coordinator for Utah State University. Be well, Utah. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we bring you funky techno and tribal beats, cool combinations of electronic effects with traditional melodies heard in the clubs and lounges of Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. One day one woman asked him, you to survive? I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Global Groove, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Time now is 10 o'clock. Coming up next is The Splendid Table, followed by performance today. Have a beautiful Tuesday morning.